Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great and the companion educational organization, the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. And each week I have the opportunity on this show to interview experts on the topic of my weekly column. This week's column is maybe a little different from my norm in that it's kind of a a counterpoint piece. Last month, there was a column written in a site called Utility Drive, written by the president of TASC, the Alliance for Solar Choice. And the executive director of TASC had written a piece attacking those of us who support fossil fuels, really. And uh, I thought, you know, this deserves kind of a counterpoint piece. And that's what I wrote this week. My column is called Rooftop Solar Companies Will Only Play If the Game is Stacked in Their Favor. And as I did research on task, in particular the Alliance for Solar Choice, I read that uh, their whole purpose is to preserve a policy called net energy metering. So I have with us today, as my first guest, Lance Brown, who is the executive director for an organization known as PACE, which I'll ask him to tell us about in a few moments. But I always reach out to Lance as one of the experts in the nation in talking about what is net energy metering, and he's able to do it in a way that the average person can really grasp. So, Lance, thanks for joining us once again on America's Voice for Energy. I look forward to your insights. It's always a pleasure. So you, you know, like I said, I reach out to you. Um, Tell us a little bit about your background and your organization first before we go into the net energy metering topic. Sure, Marita. Well, PACE is in its eighth year of operation. Um, I founded the group back in early 2009, really because there was a vacuum in the energy policy debate. We were hearing a lot from environmental groups, uh, from from voices that were really challenging us to to go 100% renewable, uh, disregard fossil fuels, and not really talking about the cost issues or the reliability issues. So we saw an opportunity there to put together like-minded people and really change the dialogue that people were having about energy. So that's what we've been doing for the past eight years, and Uh, We, like you, have come under fire in the past from groups in California and elsewhere who have a different vision. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was just going to ask you that, if you've you've, uh, faced attack for your views. We certainly have. I mean, one of the the things that gets lost in the debate is whenever, you know, we're in a place like Louisiana or Florida talking about solar issues, uh, the solar industry is often portrayed not as a for-profit industry, but as some kind of altruistic organization that is looking out for the little guy. Uh, but it's important to remember these are for-profit industries that depend largely on government policy, and they have a lot of self-interest, just like the fossil fuel industry does. So I think we need to be talking about policy rather than about good and bad uh, energy actors. 
Yeah, I appreciate that because that's what I tried to point out at the conclusion of my column is, yeah, you know what? Every industry has advocacy groups. They have trade associations. They have advocacy groups. But the difference is, you know, what are we advocating for? And uh, as you pointed out, they're advocating to keep these government policies uh, without which they cannot exist. They're advocating to keep those in place. Right, and, and, you know, we, we've talked about this before, but we've always considered ourselves energy agnostic from day one. Um, I'm not tied to any particular source of fuel. What we're after is a mix of energies that keeps prices affordable and energy reliable uh, because our biggest uh, advocates, our biggest members, are huge users of electricity, and those are the things they care about. So to yeah. me, it's not so much a question of, of one energy source versus another, but how do we get to that system that is affordable and reliable? And I think the average uh, consumer out there, the average person who's paying their household electric bill doesn't realize how energy-intensive industry, which is the driver of jobs in America, uh, actually is. No, that's right. I mean, you, you have uh, steel mills that are pulling, you know, 150 megawatts or more. Uh, that's a mind-boggling amount of energy. We, we really can't survive on, you know, niche sources of electricity like wind or solar. Those have their place, but we're going to have to be able to produce large quantities of energy on a 24-7, 365 basis. And there's only certain fuels that can do that. Yeah. Well, you know, you've laid out the, the case well for us, so let's move to this concept of net energy metering and how important that is to the solar industry. Yeah, it can be very confusing for the average person to, to, to think about what net metering is, but really the simple explanation is if you have a solar rooftop or some other form of solar power and you're producing more than you need at any given moment, uh, those electrons are, are flowing from your house back onto the grid. Now, the question that policymakers face is how much should a power company compensate the homeowner for those electrons? What net metering is all about is defining that value. Now, in, in some uh, territories, the utility is required to give you uh, credit the same amount that they would charge you, they're required to pay you for that. That is true net metering dollar for dollar. In other territories, it's some lower amount. Is that how most of the net metering policies originally came about? Or, yeah, originally, because you had so few solar rooftops, it was not that big of a deal for uh, you know public service commissions or public utility commissions around the country to simply say, if a, if a customer is putting power back on the grid, you should credit them at, at the full rate. Uh, that wasn't a problem early on. When you have several thousand people doing that, it's a big problem. And the reason is the fuel part of, of your rate is only a small part, maybe even 40%, 30% in some cases. So there is a whole host of fixed charges, fixed costs that the utility has to pay for that have nothing to do with fuel. So when you're paying a customer the full rate for electrons, the same rate you're charging them, some other customer is having to pick up that, that portion of the fixed charge. And, and there's some math involved there, but the bottom line is when you do dollar for dollar, kilowatt for kilowatt net metering, some other customer, some, some other non-solar customer 
is having to pay more if others are paying less. You know, that seems so uh, clear and logical to me. Um, but when I'm on a radio show, as I was yesterday, with and there was a solar supporter, not, not someone who was in the business of supporting solar, but someone who is in the process of putting solar panels on, her, on his home, sees no problem with the tax credits, et cetera, uh, you know, I just can't, they just won't even see that. They won't see how inequitable that uh, cost shift, as it's called, is. Yeah, it, it's so astonishingly simple. Uh, one of the examples we've used, and this is not something we came up with, but, you know, here in the South, my dad grew tomatoes in our backyard when we were growing up. And the example I've used is if you do that, let's say you have several tomato plants, you grow more tomatoes than you can eat at your house. Try taking those tomatoes to the local grocery store and see if they will pay you the same rate that they're charging for tomatoes. They're not going to do that because it makes no economic sense. But that's exactly what net metering customers are asking the utility to do. Uh, you know, when you have a resource that the utility doesn't even know it's getting from you or when it's going to get it, it's inherently less valuable than a resource that's available all the time. Well, that's a good a point. That's a good point, because they don't money. know when they're going to get it. Right. It, it would be like a supplier to a grocery store showing up with a truckload of cucumbers that the grocery store doesn't need. Uh, there's not as much value to that as a fixed order that comes in at a certain amount of times in certain quantities. Yeah, it's a good, good explanation. So, you know, this, as I point out in my column, this, the Alliance for Solar Choice, known as TASC, their sole purpose uh, uh, is to preserve, or maybe it's not their sole purpose, but a, a founding purpose is to preserve these net metering policies, which are now in question in, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, roughly two dozen states are questioning uh, their net energy metering policies. And, of course, not every state has net energy metering policies, but most do. It's certainly a foundation of the solar business model. I mean, if you're looking for ways to make uh, the solar industry grow, you really need net metering uh, to make it make economic sense for most customers. So what happened is early on you had several states. Uh, California led the way that does in a lot of environmental issues in getting out there with net metering. Other states were slower to adopt it. Uh, what you've really seen is, is states, as you point out in your article, like Hawaii, like Nevada, they got out there really on the cutting edge of net metering and then realized their mistake several years later. Uh, they, they had a system that was unsustainable that was costing other customers and shifting costs, and they've now pulled back. The advantage to other states, I live in Alabama and work mostly in the southeast, is we had an opportunity to see that. So a lot of our net metering policies we're a little bit more measured. Uh, in hindsight, they make a lot of common sense. But early on, we're heavily criticized by the tasks of the world and uh, other groups that thought that you know, this was a, a, a crazy, punitive system we were putting on solar customers. But in the end, it turned out to be a very fair model uh, that probably will become the norm. Yeah, we're definitely seeing adjustments. And, and I, one of the ways I explain it is that originally – uh, I believe this was done, and you have a little more expertise in this than I do, was because so many states, including mine in New Mexico, had a mandate for a certain amount 
of renewable energy in, in New Mexico within that mandate was a required amount to be distributed generation, which is rooftop solar. So the utility company, in order to incentivize customers to put panels on the roof to meet the law, they were willing to pay a little more to get it, but now we've met that. And, and that many states are in that place, so they no longer need that incentive to be there. What would you say about that? Well, that's a great point. I mean, you know, the perfect storm for the solar industry would be the federal and state subsidy, direct subsidy for solar. It would be aggressive net metering policies for solar customers, and it would be a renewable energy mandate. If you have all of those three things in place, then you have a great business model because you now have a product that customers in some amount have to use. Uh, but you're right. I mean, once once a lot of those mandates were met, you still had these policies on the books. Uh, they were not really needed anymore, and it's frankly just time to roll them back. Yeah. Well, it's, and that's that's what we're looking at, and that's what states are doing. And of course, um, you know, I kind of don't fault the solar industry because every industry is is interested in self preservation. But I think consumers and voters need to be aware, as you pointed out in the beginning. This is a for-profit industry. This is not some altruistic entity, and uh, I think people need to be aware of the reality of the story. We're about out of time. We've been talking with Lance Brown, the Executive Director for PACE. Lance, tell our listeners how they can get more information about your organization. Sure, Marita. Well, we're available at energyfairness.org. As you know, we put out a communications piece twice a week. It's full of information on what's going on with American Energy and how you can get involved, uh, again, energyfairness.org. Great. Thank you so much, and we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today we're talking specifically about solar energy and more specifically about the net metering policies that the solar advocates are trying so desperately to preserve. So in this segment, I'm pleased to have with me my personal favorite public regulatory commissioner, Commissioner Patrick Lyons from the state of New Mexico. And he's got some firsthand experience and information uh, to share with us about how this whole net metering policy pl plays out. So, Pat, thanks for taking time 
out of your day to talk to us. I guess I should say Commissioner, thank you for taking your time out of your day to talk to us. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Marina. And you, you write, write some of the great articles I read, and I, I really want to be available for you because I think you get the message out there real well. Well, thank you, thank you. And often often I call on you for quotes or when I have questions on something. So in the state of New Mexico, we, like uh, I think 44 other states plus the District of Columbia, if I'm correct on my numbers, have a net metering policy in the state. Is that correct? That's correct. New Mexico does have a net metering policy. And, and is it, uh, you know, what is it? And is it today what it was in the beginning? Well, things have changed a little bit. See, we have an RPS, a renewable portfolio standards, which we have to have, you know, 20% by 2020. But within that 20%, we have a diversity clause in there, which commissioners can move around that diversity, whether it be wind, solar, other, whatever it can be. And uh, what we've changed a little bit is uh, when I got there, there was so much solar, so much wind, but we, we, lowered, we lowered the standard for all of them a certain percent and say go out and get the best that 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 is the cheapest renewable source for the customer so what a concept yeah what a concept (laughs) (laughs) so a lot of the solar was coming in at 15 to 20 cents and wind was coming in at eight cents i said well let's let's try let's only put a certain amount of solar certain amount of wind the rest of it be whatever you can bring in at the for the customer that'll be most affordable to him. So we'll change that a little bit, and uh, I think it's worked out really well lately. Well, good. I'm glad, glad to hear the, the sound uh, logical policy in play because you don't see much of that in uh, renewable energy policy these days. No, we really don't. It, it's all, A lot of it's mandated by the legislature. That's what started it back in uh, 2003 on, on Governor Richardson's administration. They mandated the RPS, Renewable Portfolio Standard, but in that, they said the commission can set a diversity clause, which gave us a little latitude there to, to move that around when we need to. Well, that's good. Now, I, it's my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong in this, that, that the rate that customers are getting paid for the electricity that they generate from the rooftop solar panels has been adjusted in New Mexico since the beginning as well. Is that right? That's, cor- that, that's correct. On, on what they received... It's filed by the, the electric company uh, in each January, and and it's filed on last year's uh, numbers. Like this year was filed in January 2016 on last each each month for 2015, and that varies each month a little bit because it, it goes back to a, a qualifying facility rate for that facility that's producing that energy, and and you base it on avoided cost. So, but in New Mexico. Our average is now about 3.2 cents, which previously was was uh, somewhere around four to five cents. So, so it varies a little bit because we we changed it up some. So, what, I'm not clear on what you're saying though. So, your your avoided cost is now lower than what it was before. So, you've adjusted the net metering payment. Is that correct? That, that's exactly right. It is lower now, and it mainly has to do with. Uh, cheaper fuel prices. So how have um, solar proponents responded when you lowered the rate uh, people in New Mexico are getting paid for the solar power they they contribute to the grid? Well, that happened twice. We had 
we had a lot of the solar people up there protesting it. One, when we changed the diversity where you had to have like 30% solar, we moved that to like 10% and 10% wind. The rest of the rest of it, you could just go get whatever was a, was the a most affordable. So we had a room packed full of our, our hearing room was packed full of people then of solar industry saying, "No, you can't do that; it'll hurt our business." And then when we adjusted these rates down for how much money is being paid back from and that metering. We just sent down. We also had a room packed full of solar industry and said, "You're going to hurt our business because we're not getting as much money back." So it happened twice. The solar industry's really got a good lobbyist. Factory lobbyists remind me of the dairy industry back in the '60s and in Congress because they really come out and start lobbying everybody a bunch. And uh, we know what the dairy subsidies are a lot on milk support prices. So that's kind of really, kind of reminded me of since I've been in agriculture all my life. Reminded me of some of some of the agriculture subsidies. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that, but I do, I am familiar with the solar because I was at at least one of those hearings, you may recall, and I kind of wrote about it in my column this week. I referenced being at that hearing where the solar industry, I mean, there were like three of us in the room who were there in favor of what the commission was trying to do, and probably 50 uh, in the room that were from the solar industry, and they were all wearing shirts with solar on them and buttons, and they were waving signs. And I recall, and I think you were the chairman of the commission at the time, and uh, they they had to be, uh, the commission had to kind of tell these people, behave, don't wave your signs. Do you remember that? Oh, I remember exactly what you're talking about. I was chairman there. I was my second year there. I was chairman the first two years. And, and uh, that's when we were adjusting the... The diversity clause on that, and that's when we had a room packed full of full of solar industry people promoting their own industry. And I mean that that's good to do in your industry, but it, it's at the cost of the ratepayer. So I just believe in a, an affordable, reliable energy for the consumer. And if solar is higher, then let's go to wind. Let's go to something else. Let's don't stick it to the customer. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, and I know that very day when I left that meeting to go to my car after saying my, you know, three minutes worth of what I wanted to say, I was genuinely fearful uh, because there was such a mob kind of mentality there. Uh, I was fearful that when I went out to my car that I was going to find that my car had been keyed or that my tires had been slashed. Gratefully, neither had happened, but I was, I was afraid to walk out to the parking lot by myself. Well, I, you know, I don't blame you, but there's. I'd like to pursue uh, something else in the industry. Like, I remember visiting with a with a commissioner of New York City, and he was saying this this solar net metering is is, is a reverse Robin Hood. And this was a several two or three years ago, and I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Well, the people can afford solar panels on the roof, mainly are, are the wealthy people, and they get the net metering, get money back to them. So who's going to pay to keep?" upgrade everything, keep the system going, especially in storms and stuff. Well, it's the lower income people do so. And he was exactly right. So something's got to be addressed on that issue as in other states because there's got to be a base flat fee put on, I think, on, on the people having that metering to keep upgrading the system or just shift, shift to the lower income people. Yeah, and that's something that I, I call, uh, and different people call it different things, but I tend to call it a a grid usage fee, and as I mentioned with my previous guest, Lance Brown, you know, you, you discuss this, and to you, to me, to Lance, to many people, it makes total sense that you cannot continue to buy your product at retail and sell it at retail and stay in business. Somewhere, something's got to give. 
but you talk to solar uh, supporters, and they totally don't get it. Oh, no. They come out in droves again when you mention, well, we got to have monthly subsidy to keep the grid system going, keep everything working right, and then they just really just say give you a hard time. And I always come back and say, well, you know, that solar's so great, and, and, you know, be independent. Get off the system and just stay on that, then, then you don't have to worry about it. But that never works because you can't depend on it 100% of the time. Yeah, what do they, what are they, how do they respond when you, when you give them that pushback? Oh, they, they, they just protest and say, no, we shouldn't have to pay more because we, we paid 30000 for our system on our rooftop, and we're producing this energy, and other people are using it when we're not using it. And I said, yeah, but at nighttime, you got to stay get on the grid. The only mm-hmm. way to get that perfected is, is, you know, if they ever get a battery made that will store energy for long enough where you can use it for several days. And I don't see that's not out there yet. Maybe it's coming someday, but but that's not there yet. And they have a couple of batteries out there now, but they're very very expensive. Like right, right. And I, I've got some friends. I've got some friends, as you probably do, who are ranchers in New Mexico, who live off the grid uh, because of where they live, and uh, they they use solar power, and they've got you know basically a network of car batteries that allows them to have power 24-7, but it's, a, you know, it's, it's expensive and complicated. You know, I always like to say, Marina, that I, I was solar for solar was cool. Reminds me of a country <laughs> western song, country for country was cool. Yeah. Because us in the, in the ranching business, we have windmills, and we want to pump water out there, and there's no grid system to it. So I had solar panels 15 years ago running a, running a little well to pump water for the livestock. So... It, it, it's beneficial there. It pumps enough water in the daytime, and you don't have to use it at night, and you store the water in the storage pond there. So it worked really well. So I use solar a long time, but if you're going to use it 24-7, it's a different type of deal. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the oil industry, as you know, uses a lot of solar as well, but we're we're getting, we're uh, close to out of time. We're not out of time, but we are close to out of time. So I want to continue talking about um, the what, what what kind of pressure do you feel as a public regulatory commissioner? What kind of pressure do you feel from the solar advocates? Well, there's a tremendous amount of pressure put out there from the, from the solar advocates because they want to push their product. And it's not only from the solar advocates, from a lot of people, not only the people that are in that industry, but it's from other people that believe that they want to get rid of coal, get rid of any kind of other plant and just go strictly with renewables. That pressure is put, put on us, too, by those, that groups of people. And and I've been an elected official. This start is my 24th year, and, and really the lobbying and pressure don't affect me that much. But other commissioners that have a lot of those people living in their district, they feel a tremendous more amount of pressure on it. And I don't feel like that's the proper thing to do. I think you should work on a some type of diversity that, that's good for everybody and affordable and reliability. I always thought affordability would be the most important thing before I got a PRC job as a commissioner, but now I think it's reliable. People pay a little bit more and they get more and, and flip that switch and light comes on. So you need to have a system that's reliable and affordable. Yeah. So where do you see um, nationwide, where do you see these solar policies going? I know you go to meetings with a lot of public regulatory commissioners from around the country. Where do you see these policies going in the next few years? And do you think the presidential election has any influence on that? 
Well, take your last question first. I think the presidential election has a big influence on it because we know the current administration has bought into global warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it this time and day. And the next industry and the next president, I hope, doesn't buy into that, that myth that much. But what I see coming, and, and I just came from California and gave a talk after the industry group and come back about two weeks ago, and, and uh, California is topping over a million salt net metering maybe two million now. They said it's getting to be a big problem for, for the utility companies and trying to keep up with cost. So they're looking at addressing a monthly fee. Uh, Arizona in California. A monthly fee. Yeah. In California. Arizona did one of five bucks. It should have been 50. They're going to readdress it. I think it's coming. Yeah, we're down to about, we're down to about 30 seconds, Pat. Sorry to rush you. Yeah, that's okay. It's, it's down to about putting, a, putting a, a monthly fee on there to keep the system going. Yeah, that, that's where you see the, the trend heading. That's where I see what's coming, yes. Yeah. Commissioner Patrick Lyons from the state of New Mexico, thanks for joining us today to talk about this topic. Really appreciate your insights. And for our listeners, stay with us. We'll be right back. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. In this segment, we're going to talk with a contributor to the largest conservative blog in the state of Louisiana, The Hayride, and we're going to be talking with Kevin Boyd. I discovered Kevin while researching for this column, and he had a marvelous quote, what I felt was a marvelous quote, and incorporated into my column, in that he called the solar industry, uh, he said that they are a coalition of rent seekers and welfare queens. Such colorful language, I couldn't not use it. So, Kevin, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Pleasure to be here with you. Now, I was involved in Louisiana's uh, solar uh, I don't controversy, I guess. You, you probably have a more colorful word for it. I was there a couple times talking with state legislators, and Louisiana had, as I recall, the most generous solar subsidies in the entire nation, which made Louisiana a state to really watch and be involved in regarding this, this particular issue. What did you experience? Yeah, it's uh, Louisiana. I believe had one time fifty percent, fifty percent tax credit for the installation of the solar system, and that obviously the rooftop solar industry came in and took advantage of it, among other aspects. These were enacted after Hurricane Katrina, in order to spur the recovery, 
because uh-huh. Louisiana, because Louisiana's then Democratic governor and Democratic legislator wanted to move Louisiana more towards a green energy type portfolio. So they figured they they'd issued out these renewable tax credits to lure in the solar and wind industry into the state. When and it certainly did that. It obviously did that. Yeah, when not when not so much. Louisiana's not a very favorable state for that in, for that industry, but solar solar particularly took advantage of it. Yeah, well, and Louisiana is 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 sunny, but you know it's like you put out a put out bait, and the rats are going to come. Yes. So what yeah, what experience? Go ahead. Yeah, and this and um, I'm sure I'm sure we'll go ahead and touch on it a little bit later, but. It's brought, it brought some of the more unethical players in the solar industry to Louisiana as well. Yeah, so Louisiana put out, had very generous subsidies. When I was there, I was on a radio show at one point in Louisiana, and someone called in and said, you know, he was kind of disputing me on what I said the cost was and so forth. And he called in and he said something to the effect, is a while ago now, but he said something to the effect, he, he said, uh, my system was $40,000. Well, I was pleased that he said that right up front because that supported my premise is that solar is really expensive. Now, there's a lot of subsidies and tax credits and so forth, but the, the flat-out cost is expensive. He said it's $40,000. He said I got uh, a generous tax credit from the U.S. government, uh, and he amortized it out, and after five years he's got it you know, almost paid for, and he said then I got a check from Bobby Jindal, and uh, so anyway, bottom line is he was all proud of how well he did on getting this solar system. And, uh, you know, and I said, well, and then he has net energy metering on top of that. So he was all happy with what he was getting, and, and I was thrilled. He was like, so what do you say to that, he said to me. And I was like, well, you've made my point. My point is that this stuff only works with all of these subsidies and all of these uh, tax credits. And, you know, in Louisiana, if I understood correctly, you actually received a check. It wasn't just against your taxes. If you didn't have that high a tax burden, you could get a check back. Is that correct? It was it was a refundable tax credit. You are correct. Uh, so it's, Louisiana did have generous policies. So you saw, you know, what did you see in the state? You've mentioned some of the less ethical coming in. What happened there? Oh, Louisiana's it's full of scandals. It's full of scandals abroad. Basically, these guys were making a whole bunch of promises they couldn't keep. Kevin, I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Sure. For example, uh, there's been several instances in this state of solar companies coming in, collecting uh, tax credits they were not entitled to collect. Basically, making a whole bunch of promises to homeowners they couldn't keep. Basically, coming in. So, and going out of business is like so the, the legislature then work and again I'm still having a hard time hearing hearing you so I don't know if you can move the phone closer to your mouth but the legislature then they they passed some laws preventing some of that did they not the Louisiana legislature started when Louisiana started having its chronic budget issues the past couple yeah. of years one of the things that got targeted for good reason was the solar tax credit the legislature's begun to roll it back, and as a matter of fact, it's set to phase it out in the next few years. Yeah, when does it phase out, 17? 
Yes. Phase out in 17. So when they began to make these changes. I believe so. Changes, I can check, but yeah. That's the number that comes to me, but I don't have that as hard data in front of me either. But anyway, so when, when the legislature uh, in the budget crisis time began to look at this, um, what, what kind of response did you find in the state from the industry? All right. Some legislators wanted to move up the phase-out date because in order to go ahead and start saving the state money now. Right, so they wanted to make the phase-out date, say, 2015 or 2016 instead 2015, of 2017. 2016 instead of 2017. The solar industry fought it, and they prevailed in the legislature. Okay. So they kept the phase-out. But did you find, um, I remember talking to one of the legislators there, and he said um, that the lobbyists were at the, at the Capitol building something like, like ants at a picnic. Absolutely. Uh, the solar industry has, has spread out money to the legislature. They have. They've, been real, they've really worked the legislature. They also have been targeting the Public Service Commission here in Louisiana, which is elected. A couple of years ago, they tried to install a renewable energy activist to replace a commissioner who was hostile to the end, who was more hostile to the industry. Uh huh. Back in 2014, what happened in that race is they targeted uh, Public Service Commissioner Eric Scrimetta, who's a critic of the solar of the subsidies to the solar industry. He represents the first district on the PSC, which is the most heavily conservative Republican district on the PSC. They went out and recruited a guy from named Forrest Wright from an, from a, an environmentalist group. Forrest, they had him switch parties from Democrat to Republican, and Wright didn't even live in the district, but at the time that was allowed to run for the PSC. They made the solar industry essentially bankrolled Forrest Wright forced Scrimetta to a runoff, and Scrimetta narrowly prevailed in the runoff. So, you know, it's interesting to hear, hear the, the politics behind this and kind of some of the, I don't know, dirty tricks, I guess, because I, I think that most people have a perception of solar as being uh, truly altruistic, uh, trying to save the planet, uh, rather than uh, really a kind of a cutthroat for-profit industry that it is. Oh no! It's, and, uh, oh no! It's it's a it's a big business. Yeah, and you definitely experienced that in Louisiana. So what did what what where is the where are the policies now? You've got the Public Regulatory Commission, and uh, the legislature did make some changes. Where where is the policy in Louisiana now? All right, the battle on solar has now shifted to two things. First is net metering. In Louisiana, we have retail net metering, which is the rooftop solar guys can generate solar energy, and they sell it to the utilities who are required to buy it under state law at retail. Now, let me ask you yes. this, and your, and your listeners, this. If I grew tomatoes in my garden, and if I went to the supermarket and told the supermarket they had to buy their tomatoes from me at retail... What do you think would happen? Yeah, they'd laugh you out, laugh you out of the store. No, but if I go get the legislature to tell to mandate they buy it from me at the retail price, how do you think Supermark's going to make up its cost? Yeah. 
and, and that's that's I've been fighting this same argument. And I, I do a lot of radio shows, not just the one that I host, America's Voice for Energy, but I'm a guest on a lot of radio shows around the country. And I talk about this, and people will call, and I was on one Monday uh, in Rio Dosa, New Mexico, and they had a guy who was in studio kind of playing co-host um, who's a solar fan, not an advocate, not like a professional advocate, but he's definitely a solar fan. And he couldn't see that there's anything wrong with that. And like I said, the guy that called in when I was on the radio in Louisiana same thing. They were like, well, I don't see anything wrong with that. What do you say to those people? Well, if, um, well, they don't see anything wrong with it because they're not the ones paying the price. Yeah, they're getting the benefit the of it. Paying the, price, the people paying the price are taxpayers and ratepayers. Exactly. Now, so, and then the so second you're issue, looking in this, go ahead, yeah. The second issue we've moved on to in Louisiana is the caps, the solar industry, the amount of power the utilities required to purchase is now capped in Louisiana because what's happened is the PSC's capped it because what's been happening is everybody's been signing up for rooftop solar, and the ones who are and the utilities who are really in the, who are struggling with the cost of all these of all these people being forced to buy all this power at retail are not the big investor owned utilities like Clico and Energy here in Louisiana. It's been the little rural co ops. Hmm. And the solar industry is trying to get those caps removed. Forcing them to buy unlimited amounts of electricity whether they need it or not. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And again, we're talking about again. Louisiana is still largely a rural state, and most of, outside of the major cities and the suburbs, a lot of your power is going to come from rural co-ops. These are nonprofit. These are nonprofits, and, and usually owned by their customers. Mm-hmm. And these are usually the only people that can actually generate electricity. In those areas, because the investor, the investor-owned utilities simply don't want to service these small towns of five hundred to a thousand people. Yeah, I appreciate you making. I appreciate you making that distinction. Yeah, we're down to just forty-five seconds left, Kevin. How time flies when you're having fun. Where do you see this battle going in Louisiana in our last thirty seconds or so? Uh, right now, I think that the legislature is going to be still dealing with the budget, so I imagine we're not going to see a lot of movement either way on the solar industry. I think the issue is going on the back burner for the next couple of years here. But if the so it's going to stay where it is right now. The policy will stay kind where of it is. It's, it's going to stay where it is the next year or so. Um, but I, but so you don't expect to see any change in net metering policies? No, it's no. It's like I said, this issue is on the back burner right now with the budget. The budget yeah. and the um, coastal restoration and all that big deal. It's just bigger fresh you come up. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to hear your, your firsthand perspective there in Louisiana. We've been talking with Kevin Boyd, a contributor to The Hayride, which is Louisiana's largest conservative blog. And, Kevin, how can people find your work? Sure. They can go, on the hay, uh, they can go to thehayride.com and check us out. Mm-hmm. We've got new stuff up every day. Great. I appreciate you taking your time to join us, Kevin. Thanks so much. And we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties. Track and record your garden with photos and notes. Share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. Learn strategies to protect you and your family in the age of Obamacare. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. We've had a great show today, interesting conversation on an important topic, a little bit in the weeds sometimes for the average consumer, but an important topic it is. And I'm delighted to have as our last guest today, someone new to America's Voice for Energy, never been with us before, Someone I know referred me to Josiah Neely, and I'm delighted that he's able to join us. Josiah Neely is with R Street, and we'll let him tell us what that is, but he's the Senior Fellow and Texas Director for the R Street Institute. He's got a long list of accomplishments on his page, and I can tell you, He's much smarter than I am. But prior to uh, we're, him coming on the air with us on America's Voice for Energy, I read a post that he wrote on January 27th. Well, at least it was posted January 27th. I suspect it was written a day or two before that. Uh, but of 19, uh, 2016, where did 19 come from? Heaven forbid. Anyway, January 27th, 2016. And the title is, Understanding the GOP's Civil War Over Off-the-Grid Energy. And this is a great angle for us to use today because, as you know from the previous segments, in my column today I talk about how the, the issue of solar power and specifically the subsidies and the net metering policies, because realize there's nothing wrong with solar power inherently. It's, it's some of the modeling that goes around that that I have trouble with. And uh, so he's really brought up some interesting um, angles in this and how, how we have conservatives fighting one another over this particular issue. So, Josiah, thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy, and I can tell from our uh, introductory conversations this will not be your last time with us, I'm sure. Oh, great. Well, it's, it's very good to be here. Well, thanks. So, you know, this, this issue of solar power, and as I said, it's not about solar. It's not do you like solar or do you dislike solar. It's about the, the politics and the economics surrounding it. Would you agree? 
That's right. That's right. Uh, it, it's about uh, what attitude uh, the government or the law should have with regard to these different energy sources. Uh, and and I definitely agree that there's no energy source that's all good, and there's no energy source that's all bad, really. And and yeah, all of them have different pluses and minuses. And ideally, uh, people would you know, be able to choose uh, which which sources uh, work best for them. Yeah, and that's, that's a key thing that people don't think about is what works best in each location. And, and so instead what we've got is government policies currently that mandate certain amounts of certain energy sources, whether they're the best, for that or not, and, and I'll be very brief on this, but I often cite in New Mexico, we have two coal-fired power plants in the northwest corner of the state, and these two coal-fired power plants are at the mouth of a coal mine. We have nine units. Some of them have now been shut down, but there were nine coal-fired units, and they are at the mouth of the coal mine. In that part of the state, there are no rail lines, so that coal is stranded. That coal, if it doesn't go to those coal-fired power plants, it can't go anywhere else. In the north, that same part of the state, we have a lot of natural gas, but we have pipelines to get that natural gas out of that area to get it to global markets. And so in that case, in my opinion, closing down those coal-fired power plants and converting them to natural gas is, is not the best for that particular region for that particular use. And so I, I just use that as an example, say it's hard to make a one-size-fits-all kind of decision on energy. That's absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, the, the government, uh, unfortunately, has, has uh, had a, a checkered history here. It kind of... Uh, has a has a tendency to kind of uh, zigzag back and forth uh, in terms of you know whatever the the latest thing is that it that it wants to promote or discourage. Uh, it was not. It was only a few decades ago, for example, in which the government said um, they they tried to make it illegal to to build new natural gas uh, power plants because they were worried that we were running out of natural gas. Uh, and then, of course, you know, um, now uh, there's other sorts of energy that are on the chopping blocks and other energies that are the, the flavor of the week or whatever. And, and you know, the technology advances, and, and as you say, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with any particular sort of energy. But um, uh, ideally, these are, these are things that um, should be left uh, to the market and, and to competition. So let's let's move on to um, the GOP civil war over off the grid energy. Uh, right. You know, and as I pointed out in my column, in general, the supporters—and I mean the professional supporters—I had someone respond to my column who's a friend of mine, and um, he said, "I have I have support solar. I have solar panels on my roof, and I'm far from left leaning." But I mean, the professional supporters of solar in general are all uh, left leaning, and in general. Um, the Republicans oppose these mandates and subsidies. So, uh, well, as my article kind of indicates, there there's some nuance uh, involved in that because you do have uh, folks like 
Barry Goldwater Jr. or whatever, and there's some other folks uh, who I think their perspective would be, uh, you know, I talk about the importance of competition, um, and uh, sometimes, you know, the, so, so it's easy to understand, for example, why a lot of conservatives would say with respect to net metering, no, no, that, that shouldn't exist at all, right? Uh, yeah. What from, you know, what's the perspective of someone who considers themselves conservative but might actually be more favorable than net metering? Uh, and, and there I think, the, you know, they see it as more of an issue of there, you have a regulated, that the utilities are, are monopolies, so there's really competition, uh, and so that these policies are a way to, to kind of push back against that. My perspective uh, would be, of course, is that the ideal would be uh, to have competition, and, and then the issue wouldn't arise. Where I live in Texas, for example, we have uh, electric competition, and so net metering, there really isn't a net metering mandate uh, here in the state, and, you know, I, if a individual has solar panels on their house and they want to work out some agreement with a company to uh, buy the power back, you know, that's up to them, but no one's going to be forced to do that at any, any, any particular rate. Yeah, and that's, you know, I, I think that's true competition. I mean, a true right. competition when the utility is required to pay the rooftop solar owner a set fee that is retail rate in general. That's that's where the opposition tends to come in for their electricity. That's not true competition because they're getting a favored status, and that's where my opposition comes from. Right, right, and of course, you know uh, the the in a lot of places, you know, the the utility doesn't have competition either because they've got. Uh, you know they've got rate recovery or whatever, but uh, you know it, it's kind of a. But I mean that's um, why that's why we have public regulatory commissioners. Uh, you know when when uh, the people talk about monopolies, for example, they they say that it, you know there is in a true monopoly the idea is that the provider can charge any price they want because you can't get it from anyone else. But that's exactly why with a utility. Um, why there's public regulatory commissions so that right. they watch out for the the interests of the consumers. And, yes, they ca- they get rate recovery, which is why I get irritated. Some of the utilities are like, they're okay with cap and trade. They're okay with a carbon right. tax because they're going to recover it. It's just going to be passed on to the consumer. But so it, it's, you know, even though they're not truly competitive, they're also not truly a monopoly in that way. Right. So, 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 yeah, you you raise an absolute good point. Is that when you have a uh, a monopoly like that, uh, you have to have public oversight and regulation uh, that wouldn't otherwise uh, be appropriate. Uh, and that's why I say that you know competition would would uh, would be an ideal uh, because otherwise everything becomes a political fight, right? And and. And, you know, everybody, whether it's net metering or any, any, any of these other issues, you know, uh, it becomes an inherent uh, political thing. Uh, and, you know, we're asking, trying to look out for what's in the public's best interest. But, you know, uh, sometimes they do that. Sometimes they don't do that as well as uh, if we left things to the, to the market, for example. Um, yeah. I, uh, two, a couple of things I would say. Uh, just specifically about 
you know, net metering um, is uh, it's kind of, and, and you may have discussed this a little bit with some of your prior guests, but, you know, it, it, uh, it kind of originally arose um, in a very different technological environment, you know, where did, you did not have the ability with the meters to take account of any sort of dynamic pricing depending on the demand at a different point in time or how much stress, you know, a person was laying on the grid and, and, uh, all of those things, which, uh, now a lot of electrical systems are moving to. You also have the development, uh, you're starting to see the development of, um, electrical storage, uh, a little bit, which is still, you know, it's still a little pricey, but one thing right, right, about it is. net metering, yeah, it's a little pricey, but one thing about net metering is net metering can um, impede the uh, development and implementation of electrical storage because why would a person want to buy a battery to store their excess electricity when they can make more money selling it back onto the grid. So, you know, it gets very... Uh, that's an interesting point, because essentially yeah. they're using the utility company as a battery. They're putting right, it into right, the utility right. company during the day, and they're taking it back at night. Right, right. So, you know, and so these policies, a lot of them, I think, were, were designed um, around the assumption that uh, solar power was going to be just like a very marginal part of what's on the grid. And as long as as long as that remains true, uh, then it, you know, it's not a it's not a huge issue, right? Whether it's whether it's uh, you know, if, if solar is, you know, one tenth of one percent of all the electricity that's being used on the grid, whether the net metering rates are, are fair or not, uh, you know, it might be an inconvenience. Yeah, it was less of an issue. It's less of an issue. Yeah. As you see, as you see, uh, you know, more expansion, and of course, you know, uh, solar advocates probably, you know, <laughs> there someone who wants to advocate for solar doesn't want their argument to depend on, oh, we're just going to remain this title of sliver. They want to see it really grow. At, you right. Know, as that happens, then you start to see then these issues become more serious, uh, and that's where I think that. Um, Ultimately, we're going to have to move beyond that metering to, to you know, some to, to some other system that's going to properly allocate all the costs and the benefits uh, yeah. to the grid. Josh, Josiah, uh, we're out of time. I, I can't believe how okay. time has flown. I'll definitely have to have you back. It's great talking with you. I encourage our listeners to check out your piece. Just do a search on Understanding the GOP's Civil War Over Off the Grid energy. And that takes care of it for today, for this week with America's Voice for Energy. Please tune in again next week on americaswebradio.com. Thanks for listening. This is americaswebradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.